Good to see all of you here this morning. It's good to have all you guys joining us online around the globe whenever you're watching this. Just love it, love it, love it. It's really been fun here. Did I wear these glasses last week? No. Is this the first time I've worn red glasses? Well, these aren't my glasses. Uh, but they are clean. Thanks to, was it Corset? Corset, yeah. She lent me some, because uh, uh, I always get up here and then realize that my glasses are all foggy. And, uh, but not, so she gave me these uh, cleaners. And I can see clearly now. I can see clearly now. Gosh, there's a lot of people in here. Um, yeah, so she lent me these glasses. Uh, I lost mine, so my sister lent me these. And uh, uh, then it turns out there's a style in this. Some people are saying, oh, that looks good. And uh, so I, I might just start, well, once a little dash of color. So I might every week have it, uh, maybe next week I'll have blue. Because they, they only cost like $15. These are readers. But they really are good. Enough of that. Hey, before we get into the uh, message, uh, we have uh, this group called the Civic Engagement Team, and, and we're all about like, looking at the ways that uh, we, Christians, can impact our culture, impact the world in different ways, how we engage with culture. And one of the things that the Civic Engagement Team proposed is that every now and then uh, we, we take some time out to pray for some group around the world that is suffering. Um, to remind ourselves that, that, that we're to be global citizens. Uh, there's a whole lot that goes on in this world that doesn't get reported very much here in America, speaking specifically of America, because it just doesn't rate very high on, on Americans' interest scale, so the news doesn't report it. But uh, we're not to be beholden to what the news reports or doesn't report. Uh, we're to have an awareness that all people are God's children. And, um, and we want to use whatever influence we have in prayer, and we do have a strong influence in prayer, on behalf of those who are suffering. So this morning, we just want to take a few minutes out before I get into this message uh, to pray for the folks in the Horn of Africa. Some of you may have heard this, but in Kenya, Somalia, Ethiopia, they are having a severe drought, worst drought in 40 years. There's 36 million people that are affected by this drought. It's been going on for a couple of years now. It's very serious. The UN just declared that parts of Ethiopia are now in famine, which is the stage after drought. Here's where people are, and, and tons of animals are starving to death or dying of dehydration because of this drought. 1.7 million people so far have been displaced by this drought. Their, their, their land is literally uninhabitable, and so they're having to migrate elsewhere to find food and water. And that, sadly, is going to be a reality that's going to intensify in all likelihood, as we go into the future here with this global warming thing, these folks are suffering. Some of them have to travel long distances to find food and water. I read this one account of uh, a lady, Hamila Omar, from Ethiopia, and she had to travel three weeks to find, they have refugee camps set up various areas, regions now in, in the Horn of Africa, but she had to travel, it took her three weeks, she traveled over 90 miles with two children to finally get to a place where she could find food and water. And she arrived with her two children, but she had two because four had already died. And she said in this report that the hardest thing in the world is to be a mother and having to watch your children starve to death because you don't have anything to feed them. And I imagine that would be the worst thing imaginable. So there's this really terrible suffering going on in this part of the world. So can we join together here online too? Let's, let's, let's focus our hearts on these folks in this region, and with empathetic hearts, let's intercede on their behalf. Join me. Abba Father, our hearts go out to these suffering people 
in the Horn of Africa and these countries that are just experiencing this devastating drought that's been going on and on. And if there's not relief, they're afraid that the death toll is just going to escalate. Lord, we want to use the power that you've given us in prayer, this unique authority that you've given us to just open up the floodgates of heaven, to cause a more of a kingdom influence to flow from heaven onto these people, Lord. We come against anything in the spirit realm that is intensifying, causing, agitating this, 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 this crisis. We bind it in Jesus' name. And we ask you, Holy Spirit, to now just, sh- just shower down on these people, literally rain, um, reverse the situation that they're in. And sometimes it feels like trying to move a mountain with a teaspoon. <laughs> what can we people here at Woodland Hills do on behalf of this whole country? But we believe in the power of prayer, and it makes a difference. And so, Lord, in Jesus' name, in Jesus' name, we intercede on behalf of this people. Bring relief to their situation. Reverse it. Save lives. In Jesus' name. And all God's people said, amen, amen, amen. amen. All right. I like that we're doing this. I think that's a good thing to do. So we're coming to the end of the Sermon on the Mount. Um, In two and a half years, we've been in this series. And uh, uh, it's, it's, it's been a great ride. Um, there are 29 verses in chapter 7. So the Sermon on the Mount ends on verse 29. Uh, today we'll get up to verse 27. I'm going to piece through verses 24 through 27. So we're almost there. Uh, but we're going to have to suspend it for a little bit because as Dan mentioned, we're going into a Christmas series. So this is a little bit weird. We're stopping here. We've got two verses to go. We're, we'll pick it up the first week in January which is kind of weird because usually in January you're you're, you're talking about new beginnings, not endings. But we're going to end the message next January. And we're going to have two weeks on this. Um, But it's working out really well because we wanted to have at least two weeks where we would kind of summarize the Sermon on the Mount, kind of bring it all together, put a bow on it. If you spend two and a half years on a sermon series, it seems like you shouldn't just peter out at the end. It should have some kind of a, you know, concluding something with some gravitas or whatever. And so uh, the first two weeks in January, uh, we'll be uh, wrapping this up. And the last two verses of chapter 7 really are, uh, provide a good foundation for that. So yay. So you have that to look forward to in 2023. Boom. Woohoo! All right. So today, we, we, we've been looking at how Jesus ends the Sermon on the Mount by, by picking up this two ways tradition. Two ways is a way of teaching, pedagogical tool that was common in ancient Judaism where you contrast things. You teach by contrasting. And so we saw that Jesus first contrasts the narrow, hard road that leads to life with the wide and easy road that leads to destruction. And then he contrasts the true prophets and the false prophets. True prophets are ones who encourage people to be on the hard and narrow road, where the false prophets lure people over to the wide and easy road. Today we're going to see that Jesus contrasts a wise builder with a foolish builder. They're going to talk about buildings. So we pick it up in verse 24. Jesus says, Everyone then who hears these words of mine and acts on them will be like a wise man who built his house on rock. The rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat on that house, but it did not fall because it had been founded on rock. And everyone who hears these words of mine and does not act on them will be like a foolish man who built his house on sand. The rain fell, the floods came, the winds blew and beat against that house, and it fell. And great was its fall. Holy Spirit, open our hearts and minds 
to hear your word and to apply it. In Jesus' name, amen. So when I was in graduate school, I took whatever job would pay the most. It didn't matter how yucky it was. Uh, I needed the money. And so I'd spend summers just doing grunt jobs because they the ones that paid the most. This one summer, a friend of mine, uh, he owned this three-season, um, I think it was called three-season porches, where it's like almost all glass houses. You can, you can attach them to houses. They're like a sunroom. It's almost all glass. And he invited me to join his team that summer and building all these, uh, these, these sunrooms. Uh, and it paid pretty well, so I said, okay, I'll do it. Turns out I really suck at building things. It, it, it's, I, I, it, it, you have to measure things very precisely. You know, you had the, the metal rods, and you had to cut them just right so they fit in, so then that's what held the glass in place. But you only had a 1 16th of an inch margin of error. And I, no matter how carefully I measured it, how straight I drew the line, how careful I was with the saw, I, I hardly ever got it right. You know, one sixteenth of an inch is so small, I was proud if I got it within a quarter of an inch. Hey, that wasn't too bad. But it's got to be exact. And, and, and the thing is, is if, you get it, if you don't get it exact, you've just ruined that piece of metal, which is expensive, and the boss doesn't like that. And these guys, it just blew me away, because they could grab this metal, they measure it, doop, Cut it. It takes about five seconds, and then they're up doing it. I'm here to spend two minutes just trying to get it exactly right. I cut it, and it's still off. Very frustrating. It turns out I am not a very good handyman. Of course, I already knew that. I, 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 in my house, I'm mad enough to say this, uh, all the male things, stereotypical male things that guys are supposed to do, my wife does them. Uh, she's just much more, she's practical. I, my head's always in the clouds, and if you want something broken, ask me to fix it. And that's kind of our, our, our slogan. So, so the only one I know who is worse at being a handyman than I am is my friend Paul Eddy. <laughs> I mean, really, you think I'm a zero, you should see this guy. And so it's one of the reasons I love this guy, so I hang out with him just to help my self, self-esteem. It works. So, so I, I, I was no good at this, but here's the thing. So I don't know anything about building stuff. I don't like to build stuff. I'm no good at building stuff. But even I know, even I, more on me, I know that if you're going to build a house, you have to have a strong foundation. Everybody knows that. It's the most important part of a house is the foundation. The house is only as strong as your foundation is solid. Everybody knows this. And so, so it, it, this isn't rocket science. So Jesus knows everybody knows this. This is, this is common sense. And yet we don't apply this to our life. We all know that a house needs a strong foundation. Because storms are going to come. And if you don't have a strong foundation, well, that could just blow your house away. But Jesus is saying, is saying the same thing holds true of our life. We're building something with our life, whether we know it or not. And the question is, is how firm is your foundation? Will it stand in a time of storm? Um, now, now, why he says the firm foundation is when we take his teachings and apply them to our life. When we act on them, that builds a foundation for the building of our life that we're building right now. Now, why is that? And the answer is this. That when a person applies, regularly applies the teachings of Jesus to their life, um, that becomes a habit. Whatever you do continually becomes a habit. You get good at it. And that habit, if you continue in it, becomes your character. And your character, as ancients have always understood... Your character is your destiny. 
So your character is the foundation for the building of your, that you're building with your life. And uh, those who continually act on it build a character. They're wise because they're building a character that stands up to the storms when the storms of life come. Whereas those who only hear the words of Jesus and don't apply them to their life, well, they're, they're acting foolishly because they're building a house on sand. And so when the storm comes and the wind blows and the floods come on down and the house gets beaten and battered, that house is going to fall. So the question we've got to ask ourselves is what kind of house are you building with your life? And does it have this firm foundation? Are you ready for the storms when they come? Because it's not a question of if storms are going to come. Storms are going to come. Now, this teaching, I think, applies to any of the kind of storms, the, the character-testing storms that life can send our way. In this fallen world, we, you're going to confront storms. But scholars agree that Jesus, in this context in which he's talking, it's called an apocalyptic context. Uh, Jesus and his disciples, they, they expected the, the final judgment to come in their lifetime and, and at any moment. And so scholars agree that his audience would have understood, and this is what Jesus intended, that that storm is the final judgment. And so Jesus is here teaching, as he so often does, that live your life with a view towards that accountability, that time when the quality of the house that you're building with your life is going to be tested. Build a house that will stand. What he's saying is build the kind of character in your life that's compatible with the perfect love of God. Because in the final judgment, that perfect love of God will test the quality of our house. Paul puts it like this in, in 1 Corinthians 3. We've looked at this passage a couple times. I don't want to turn to it right now. But he likens the final judgment as, as he says it's, it's like, he doesn't use the imagery of storms, he uses the imagery of fire. And, and the final judgment, it's just a matter of the true us coming into the presence of the true God. And that love of God will function like a fire that will refine everything about your life that can be refined but will burn away everything about your life that needs to be burned away. And so it will determine, it will test the quality of the house that you've built with your life to see whether it's gold or silver or precious stones. Because those things survive fire. In fact, those things are refined by the fire. It'll be perfected by the love of God. But it will also determine the, the degree to which your house is built on wood or hay or straw. And that kind of stuff is incompatible with fire. It gets burned up in the fire. And so Paul says that to the degree that your house is built on, it's built of hay and wooden straw, you'll suffer a loss, he says, 1 Corinthians 3. And um, it will not be pleasant. <laughs> it's, it's, it's something that you want to avoid. So we're, we're to be cultivating this character to make our, our, our life compatible with the love of God that can be refined by the love of God. And to the degree that that's not the case, we suffer loss. And Jesus warns about this. This is the destruction, as we talked about last week, that he warns about. You don't want to go there. Better to... Let the love of God right here and right now burn away in our life. Let that love burn away everything that's not consistent with the character of God. Everything that's not consistent with the fruit of the Spirit. Because uh, it's far better to do it now than to have it be done later on. It will get done. It's just a question of, do you do it now? Or does it happen later on? And everything in the New Testament is telling us it's much, much, it's in our best interest to do it now. Uh, this is actually the, God's end game. Because, see, nothing that's inconsistent with love can be present in the kingdom. That's why God is, in his love, doing us a favor when he burns it away, whether it's now or later on. He does it out of, our, out of a concern for us. It's in our best interest. But it hits me then, this has really struck me this week, you guys. It means this is all about character. 
Character is the center of everything. Um, the, the reason why Jesus became a human being and then died on the cross was to, of course, free us from our sin and, and, and free us from the bondage to the enemy and reconcile us to God and all that. But all that happened so that something else might happen. And that something else is about our transformation. Here's another verse that I keep coming back to because it's just, it's so profound. So read it again, 2 Corinthians 5, starting with verse 13. Paul says, for the love of Christ urges us on. It urges, it compels us, draws us. Because we're convinced that one has died for all. That's Jesus. He died for all, and therefore all have died. In some sense, the old self of every human being has already died. And Jesus died for all, he says, so that, so that, so that, it, 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 that, that designates the end cause, the goal, the ultimate thing that God's aiming at, so that those who live might live no longer for themselves, but for the one who for their sake died and was raised again. All right, so Paul says it's the love of Christ that compels him. Uh, it shows us that Paul had this beautiful picture of God. And that, 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 that his, his, his picture of God, which was centered on the cross, because the cross reveals God's true nature, that the beauty of that is what motivated him to do all that he did. He gave up this cushy life he could have had as a scribe, as a Pharisee, uh, and he gave all that up to become this church planner and go through hardships and, and shipwrecks and persecution and all the rest. Why? Well, he was in love with Jesus, and that compelled him to do crazy things. Love will make you do that. And notice this, that part of his beautiful picture of God included what God has done for everybody else. The beauty of the fact that when Jesus died, in some sense, all human beings, the old self of all human beings died, that is part of what motivated him to do what he did. The fact that God has already claimed everybody. As all were in Adam, so all are in Christ. The beauty of that motivated Paul to dedicate his life to sharing that good news with everybody. The love of Christ compelled him. The cross changed everything for everyone, and that's part of what motivated Paul to do what he did. So Jesus died so that this goal might be achieved. God became a human being, bore the sin of the world, bore the judgment of the world in order that. The end result would be humanity having a character that reflects the character of God. The goal is to have humanity, every human being, being transformed by the love of God. Surrender to the love of God, no longer living from themselves, being freed from the bondage of self in order to, to, to dance with the triune God in the never-ending kingdom that, that awaits us. That's God's end game. It's all about character, all about character, so that it seems to me, I could be wrong, but it seems to me that standard American evangelical theology, we love to celebrate what God has done for us, but we tend to minimize the so that. Yes, hallelujah, Jesus died on the cross and removed every obstacle that, that separated us from God and, and all the rest. Yeah, hallelujah, we should celebrate that. But the so that, well, I think it's downplayed, if not completely ignored, so that we would be transformed. The end game was the transformation of our character. I, I read a poll, this is uh, or it's, uh, this research, Barna did this research, and this is probably 15 years old, so it's changed a little bit, I'm sure. But uh, at that time, uh, in this Barna survey, uh, about 80% of Americans, when they're asked, what is your faith, they respond that they're Christian. I'm sure it's lower now. I think it's down to like 74% or something like that now. But uh, 
A good portion of Americans said, yes, they're Christian. But if you ask further questions about what does that mean, what implications does it have for your life, how does it affect your values, how does it affect your ethics, how does it basically affect your character, what Barna discovered was that for about three-quarters of them, the answer was nothing. That their values, their ethics, what they would do if there wasn't any consequences involved, is the same as it is for the broader culture. And see, that is, that, that, that is from a New Testament perspective, just tragic. Because it, it, it means that, to a large degree, Christians are failing at the most important point, the so that. Really glad about all that God has done for us, but the so that we would be transformed tends to get pushed aside, and it, it's not hard to figure out why. It's because the so that cost us something. We have to be involved in that. It's about our character, so, so God's not going to do it for us. It, there's a, there's a, we have to surrender. Uh, there's a role we play. There's things that we'll have to give up. There's, there's, there's going to be some sacrifices that need to be made, and we'd rather not have that. We're the quintessential consumers, and so we want the best deal. Uh, we want the most for the least price. And so we create this option where we have all that God's done for us, and we just leave the soul that alone. Maybe God will take, magically take care of the soul that when we die. He'll just magically do that. But that is not the New Testament's teaching. The soul that is all important. Um, it's tragic if that doesn't get done. It means that to the degree that our lives are not being transformed by what we believe, to that degree, God's soul that is thwarted. Let's push it down. So I've been thinking about this this week, and it's really had this impact on me. I see something more clear than I've ever seen before, and that is this, that if this is God's so that, if this is the, the end game, our character development, then it's got to be our end game. It's got to be our so that. I'm alive. I exist so that I might acquire the character of Jesus Christ. I exist, and you exist. God created you, and God saved you so that you would reflect the character of Jesus Christ, the love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, gentleness, meekness, uh, and self-control that is the fruit of the Spirit. All of that is a reflection of, of, of God's love. God's end game and our end game has got to be the cultivation of a character that puts on display those, that fruit of the Spirit. Become the most loving version of yourself that you can possibly be. And if this is God's number one priority, it's got to be our number one priority. This is what success looks like from a New, from a New Testament point of view. Uh, have you lived your life well? This is the criteria. This is the all-important everything. And if it's the number one priority of our life, then it's got to be the number one priority of every day. Because your life is nothing more than a series of days strung together. And if it's going to be the highest priority of every day, it's got to be the highest priority of every moment of every day, because your life is nothing but a series of present moments strung together. Think about this. The number one objective at all times it's to become the most loving version of yourself that you can possibly be. Um, now, this is not the way we normally think, is it? How many of us this morning, when you got up and you thought about what you have to do today, wrote down priority number one, end this day more Christ-like than I started. Grow. Number one priority. How many? Probably not many. I did. Because I'm preaching this thing this morning. So I get to feel righteous. I get to feel righteous. Uh -huh. No, but see, this is not the way we normally think. In fact, everything about our secular culture conditions us not to think this way. We're conditioned to just think about how to have your best life now, how to acquire stuff, what you got to do, and all the rest. 
the here and now, the physical world, and in this secular culture in which we live, values get pushed aside, character gets pushed aside, spiritual stuff gets pushed aside. You've got to swim upstream in this culture if you're going to cultivate the kind of mind and heart that's getting ready for the kingdom of God. It's getting fit for the kingdom. This is, I think, the area probably where, where disciple thinking and, and, and worldly thinking clashes the most. We've got to be willing to swim upstream in this, in a culture that does not encourage us to be seeing our life as our, our number one project, we've got to adopt it as our number one project. The purpose of my life and the purpose of your life is to become Christ-like, to develop that character. Whatever else you do, whatever else you acquire, however good or how bad life's been going for you, it doesn't matter. The number one goal is to acquire the character of Jesus Christ, develop the fruit of the Spirit. If it's God's top priority, it's got to be our top priority of every moment. And we've got to be aware that we can't do this on our own. This isn't a self-help, on-your-own-effort kind of a thing. No, when you, when you surrender your life to Christ, God gives you the Holy Spirit, places the Holy, his, his Spirit inside of you. And that Spirit empowers us and influences us. We have a constant companion who's always there. If we're listening, we sang about it earlier. He's always working. He's always working. Um, and, and that's true. Whether you know it or not, whether you feel it or not, the Holy Spirit's at work. But our job is then to yield to the Spirit and when, we're, when we see, as the Holy Spirit causes us to see that there's a loving thing to do, to do it. In every situation, ask, what is the most loving thing to do? Or what is the fruit of the Spirit that can be most displayed here? Peace, patience, kindness, gentleness, meekness, self-control. And, and, and that to yield to that, to do that. We can't do it without the Holy Spirit. But at the same time, we've got to understand that the Holy Spirit's not going to do it for us. God wants a relationship with real people, and real people are agents. We have say-so in this. It's about our character, and so it sets us our character. We've got to do some, the, the deciding here. We decide to yield to the Spirit. We can't do this without the Holy Spirit, but the Holy Spirit's not going to do it for us. And there will be sacrifices that need to be made because it's all about learning how to die to yourself, to get free from this bondage to the, your ego and living in a self-centered way. Jesus died for all so that those who live might no longer live for themselves. The bondage of that pathetic, always hungry, starving, needy ego but rather be filled by the love of God and therefore live uh, out of love for the one who died for us and gave his life for us. Putting Jesus' teaching into action is what develops our character. And that, folks, is the foundation for our life. How firm is your foundation? Putting, continually putting Jesus' teaching into action. It's interesting that Jesus ends the Sermon on the Mount with this call to action. Because he's saying, look, it, you've, I've told you all these words, you've heard all these words. And now the all-important question is, what are you going to do with it? And if you don't apply it to your life, it's completely worthless. Don't just be hearers of the word, be doers. Okay, let's get really honest here. Someone goes, uh-oh. <laughs> now, here's the thing. I, I, I just did this critique of American evangelicalism, where we believe a whole lot of stuff and know a whole lot of stuff, but it doesn't translate into life transformation. But can we confess that in all likelihood, the majority of us have the same problem? In fact, I doubt there's anyone here who is perfectly living out all that they know they should be doing. We know a lot. In fact, we have so much access to education that Bible tools and research tools and stuff, we love to learn. We love to find new insights, gather new information. But it often does not translate into action, and therefore it doesn't translate into character development. Um, we all know more than we do. Somebody say amen. 
Maybe I'm the only one up here, but I, I, there's a gulf between what I know and what gets translated into my life. In fact, C.S. Lewis argued that this is true of every human being, of the race in general. Every culture has a moral code, and none, in every culture, people don't live up to that code. That's how C.S. Lewis argued that that's an argument for the, that, that morality has a transcendent origin, that it, it's, a, it's, it's rooted in reality because human beings would never on our own come up with a moral code that condemns us. We'd, if it was our making, we'd make a moral code that we could succeed at. So we feel better about ourselves. But none of us lives up to what we know is true, what we know is good. There's a gulf there. So it means that we are failing at the most important point, the so that. We learn about all that God's done for us and all the wonderful stuff, and it's wonderful, it's good, celebrate it, but the so that gets lost. So I don't think anybody who's hearing this message right now would want to dispute Paul when Paul says, all have sinned and come short of the glory of God, right? Uh, He's telling the truth. And it's always good to remind ourselves of this, even though we might not want to hear it. But by remembering this, that we all fall short of the glory of God, it keeps us humble and keeps us from judging other people. And it's only when you can stop judging other people that you really can learn to love other people. you got to know that you're a sinner and are in no position to judge others if, before you can ever become a lover and loving people with the love of God that's unconditional and has no if, ands, or buts. Now, at this point, it'd be easy. Okay, we're all sinners. Um, it'd be easy to start beating ourselves up because what a bunch of losers we are. I mean, come on. What a bunch of losers. You know, we, we, we're failing at the most important point to sow that. What's wrong with us? How come it doesn't translate? What's wrong with the elevator that goes from our head to our heart to our life? We're broken here. And maybe there could be a connotation there of, of sort of like, come on, let's get it. We got to work harder at this. Try harder. You know, you're going to shame people into right behavior. And if this was a different kind of church, like the kind of church I initially got saved in, the preacher would wax eloquent and make them, him, himself the exception to everybody else. You guys are all sinners. I'm the righteous guy. You're a bunch of sinners. What's wrong with you guys? Come on, put some elbow work into this. Get off the couch. Get doing better. Whatever. Shame people into good behavior, but you see, that is not the kingdom way. First of all, it's, it's not going to succeed. You, you, you don't shame people into improvement. It just doesn't work. Uh, but beyond that, that's not the kingdom way. It's the love of Christ that is to compel us. Paul wasn't compelled by shame and I got to do better and whatever. No, he was compelled by the love of Christ. We do need to know that there's consequences for all of our actions. That's true. But, but what, what, what compels us, what motivates us, what can begin to spur us into applying the teachings of Jesus to our life, it's not fear or shame or guilt or all the rest. It's the love of Christ. It's the beauty of Christ that is to compel us. If we're lacking the motivation to bridge the gulf between our head and our life, between what we know and what we do, if we're lacking the motivation to do that, I submit to you it's because we're not seeing the beauty enough. The, the, the beauty of Christ and the beauty of what Christ has done for us, it's not yet gripping our hearts as strongly as it should, as strongly as it could. We're not yet seeing the beauty that's, that creates a desire for us to move in that direction. We're not seeing the beauty of all that Christ has done for everybody and therefore the beauty of what Christ has done for us. Another way of saying that is we don't yet have a full faith in the beauty of God and the beauty of what God has done for us on Calvary when he removed all the obstacles that separated us from Christ and, 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 and created us anew in Christ Jesus. We're not yet seeing that. Here's what faith is. I come back to this a lot because it's so foundational. Faith is the substantiating of things hoped for and the conviction of things not seen. Now listen to this. 
faith is the substantiating. This is the Darby translation, which is, I think, by far the best translation out there of this passage. Faith is the substantiating of things hoped for. That word is, the word in Greek is hypostasis, and it means substance. Substantiating is a good translation of it. It's when there's something that you hold for or something that you believe to be true, something you anticipate, and you see it in your mind as a substantial reality, as though it was real, as though it was already done. You envision that this is what faith is, because you believe it's true. And as you see and experience this vision, this hypostatic reality, this hypostasis of what you believe to be true in the future, it creates in you a conviction. The word there is elenkos in Greek. And it's this desire. You see this, it's beautiful, and you want it. It creates in you a desire, this conviction that it is so, and that's what motivates you to start moving in a certain direction, in the direction of that thing that you hope for. And Hebrews 11 is all about people who did that. They saw this heavenly city. Uh, they had a vision, and it created in them a conviction that it is so, and they moved in a certain direction. They weren't guaranteed that in this life they're going to find that. In fact, none of them did. But it caused them to live in a different kind of a way. Folks, this is, this is how we get motivated to bridge this gap between what we know and what we do. We need a compelling vision, the beauty of Christ, and the beauty of what Christ has done for us. Um, and as we see that beauty, as though it was a substantial reality, it creates in us this yes, this conviction, and that is what motivates us to move in, in this certain direction, to attain that. It's like this. If, you, if our life is to be, if our number one project in life, number one purpose in life, is to become the most loving version of yourself that you can be, the most Christ-like version of yourself that you can be, well, then you need to have a clear picture of the destination, the goal that you're heading towards. And you need to see that as beautiful, as concrete, as lifelike as possible. And that's what transforms us, to begin moving in a certain, certain direction to attain that. So I want to end with an exercise where we do this. Um, and here, here, before we do the exercise, I'm going to say one more thing, and that's this. This is about seeing the beauty of Christ and the beauty of what Christ has done for you. It's about envisioning the true you. And the true you that's going to be there at the end of this process of character development is beautiful and radiant. This is part of the glory, Paul says in Romans 8, that the whole creation yearns like, a, like labor pains, is in labor pains, to see the manifestation of the children of God. Because when the children of God are fully manifested in all their glory, well, then the whole creation is going to be redeemed because it was put under our authority. So it's good and necessary for you to see the you that will be there in glory. Paul says that we've never imagined the things which God has in store for us and that, that, that the glory that God has in store for us is, is, can't be compared to the sufferings of this present age. Part of that glory is, is you, you're going to be glorious. We'll be participating in the glory of God. We're participating in the divine nature. And so it glorifies Christ when, when we're sharing that glory. In fact, it says in John 17 that he's given us his glory. So it's really important that we see ourselves in all of our true beauty. Now, some Christians have been taught that, that you should never see yourself as glorious. No, all the glory goes to God. And human beings, we're a bunch of sinners. We're, we're, we're just, you know, scum. And, and, you know, we think we're glorifying God when we beat up on ourselves. And that's just a bunch of cocky pop, whatever. <laughs> no, here's the thing. God's not threatened by you being made glorious. No, that's why Jesus died on the cross and, 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 and bore our sin and bore that judgment. So that we would be shining in glory. Now, 
It's not a glory that's in competition with the glory of God. It's more like the goal is for us to be mirrors, untarnished mirrors that reflect the glory of God. And so by you seeing yourself in, in full display, the fruit of the Spirit just coming out of you, radiating out of you, well, that's part of your glorifying God. Look what God has done for me. Um, Paul, it was, he saw not just that one died for all, he also saw that all had died. And that's part of his beauty of the picture of God that compelled him to move forward. So I want to do this exercise. And uh, this is the goal. Um, I, I would recommend, I've been, I've been doing this for uh, but nine days now, every morning. I spend the first 20 minutes or so doing this exercise. It doesn't take 20 minutes, but you can spend as long as you want on it. Um, and I, I do this before I even get into my yoga. And I'm just finding that it orientates my day in a different way, where I'm remembering more frequently than I used to, uh, to be living in the moment. And the number one goal of every moment is to be the most loving version of myself as I can possibly be. It's transforming. So if you uh, want to close your eyes, you can. A lot of people find that that's helpful when it comes to uh, meditating, to kind of shut out everything else. But you don't have to do it. There's no rules about this. And let's start by reminding ourselves that we are right now in this moment surrounded by God's perfect, unwavering, unending, unfathomable love. And you are this moment loved with an unsurpassable love, a love that could not be improved upon. Knowing that we're surrounded by this love, breathe, breathe in, take a deep breath. Breathe in that love. And breathe out everything that's not consistent with that love. Love, God's love is to our soul what air is to our lungs. We need it. Breathe it in, into the depths of your soul. Breathe in that love. Breathe out everything that's not consistent with that love. Breathe out all hatred, all animosity, all prejudice. Breathe it out. Now breathe in God's joy. Breathe out despair, depression, anxiety. Breathe in God's light. And breathe out all darkness. Breathe in God's peace. You're surrounded by God's peace. Breathe out all anxiety, all disturbance. Thank you, brother. All right, so this sets the context. Now, there's three steps in this exercise. Step number one, ask the Spirit to give you a faith vision, hypostasis, a concrete faith vision of what you look like at the end of this long journey of character development. Ask the Spirit to give you a clear vision, concrete vision, as though it had already happened. What do you look like when you're free of those wounds that you've carried all your life? What do you look like when you're completely free of all the regrets, completely free of all fear? What do you look like when you're completely free of that depression or that anger issue that you have? See it. Ask the Holy Spirit to give you a clear vision of what you look like when you're free, completely free, of your sin, and of those destructive habits, destructive addictions that you have. See yourself as free. What do you look like when you realize finally that you're a child of the king, and so you're far better than the petty self-centeredness that you've 
carried around for so long and you're entirely free of all resentments, entirely free of everything that's inconsistent with love. But you've completely lost that insecurity and you've lost all shame. What do you look like? When God's love and God's joy and God's peace permeates every fiber of your being, can you see yourself? How the Holy Spirit, give us a representation of that. And make it real. Make it vivid. When you are brilliantly putting on display the fruit of the Spirit, love radiates from you. Joy radiates from you. Peace radiates from you. Kindness, gentleness, meekness, self-control, it's all there. And just enjoy the beauty of that. If, if you're seeing it accurately, it should be like, whoa! It is amazing. God is a master artist, and you are his masterpiece. And maybe it doesn't feel like that now, but you're seeing yourself as you are at the end of this journey. Okay, now step number two, step into that vision. You've got a vision, hypostasis. Now, don't just look at that, step into that, wear it. Experience yourself as you will be at the end of this journey. Enjoy the feeling and the freedom and the complete congruity in your inner being that you have when you're done with this character-growing process. Enjoy how that feels. And affirm as you're stepping into that. You're just experiencing yourself as you will be in that day. And now affirm that this is the true you. Experience it as though it, it already happened. You've already completed the process. In fact, thank God ahead of time for what he has done in you as he's worked with you through this life. Uh, to bring you to this point, give thanks to God for creating you and making you and saving you so beautifully, so wonderfully. All of that is old is gone and dead. You're a new creature in Christ Jesus. And affirm that this is the real you as though it had already happened because there's a sense in which it has already happened. Remind yourself as you're sitting in the presence of God surrounded by his love that the Bible in a sense says this is already done. Your old self has already died. We just read it. God speaks in the present tense to us and says, you are my radiant bride. You are fearfully, fearfully and wonderfully made. You are holy. You are blameless. You are spotless in Christ Jesus already. He seated us in heavenly places in Christ Jesus already. He's blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the, in the heavenly realms. Already he's freed us from that bondage and so affirmed that this is the true you, that God has already spoken into existence because of what Jesus did for us in Calvary. So really, we're, 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 the whole process of, of growing in Christ-likeness is a matter of becoming who you truly are, becoming who you already are, becoming who Jesus created you and saved you to be. You're just catching up with God's truth. And then step number three. If this is on your heart to do, then say this. If it's not, then don't. Maybe you'll be ready next week. But as you see the true you, the glorious you that Jesus died for, and you see the end result of all that God has done, confess your intention to God, your intention to Become that. Make a covenant with God in yourself that this will be your number one priority. Whatever else you do in life, this has got to be the highest priority. 
to become this most loving version of yourself that you can possibly imagine. It's glorious. It's beautiful. You're radiant. Commit your life to becoming this and to always be growing in this. You know, Paul said at the end of his life that he's not yet attained that high prize. And if Paul hadn't yet attained it, I suspect none of us have yet attained it. I don't care if you're 79 or 84 or 118. I, there's still growth to have happen. Stay hungry. See this destiny that you're headed towards as a hypostatic reality, hypostasis, and let it create in you the conviction that it is so. Because that, folks, is what will bridge the gulf between what you know and what you do. When I see clearly what God is in store for me and for all of us, um, man, do I want that. It makes you hungry, doesn't it? I mean, I, I, yeah, the exercise is done all, by the way. Uh, yeah, you get hungry for it. And see, that's what you need. That hunger is what leads us on. There's a lot of sacrifice that goes on in the Christian life. You've got to say no to a lot of things you'd like to say yes to, and yes to some things maybe you'd, your, your, your old self would want to say no to. But if you keep your eye on that prize, it's worth it. It's more than worth it. And let that, the beauty of, of what Christ has done pull you forward. I, I would encourage you to try this every morning. If this is the goal of our day, if this is the goal of every day, goal of every moment, start off your day just by reminding yourself of who you are, where you're headed, what, what your life is all about, and do, do, do this exercise and see how it starts to transform, how you, how you carry yourself throughout the day, what you think about throughout the day, what you notice throughout the day, and it's beautiful and it's glorious. All right, I'm going to end in prayer, but before I do that, I'll just uh, mention that um, we have the gathering groups, and I would encourage you to check those out. Meet some people, discuss the message, go a little deeper with it. We also have the Tuesday Musecast. And um, uh, Shauna and Dan go deeper with the message there. Sometimes they have gifts on and, and things like that. So you can check that out. What else am I supposed to announce, Rob? Prayer. Oh, we have prayer. Um, uh, if you're in-house here, it's up here at the front. Got some folks who would love to pray with you, whatever. Could be about this issue, could be about something else. Uh, but whatever it is that you're carrying around, don't, don't, don't carry it out with you. Uh, and if you're online, there's some folks that you can pray with uh, through the app there. Heavenly Father, we just thank you for all that you have done for us, going to the furthest extreme that was possible in order to redeem us and reconcile us to yourself and free us from bondage to evil. And you did all that so that we might be transformed. Holy Spirit, will you, throughout this coming week, be reminding us of that so that. And help us, Lord God, to be transformed by the renewing of our mind as we get a clear vision of just where you're heading, where we're going, what the goal is here. And motivate us, Lord, to be applying your teachings so that we will be wise builders of the house of our life. So when the storm comes, we stand strong in your love, in your grace, in your mercy, in your glory. In Jesus' name. And all God's people said... God bless you guys. Go out, be the most loving version of yourself that you can be moment by moment. See you next week.